0: Okay, welcome, comrades, to this uh, talk on uh, Marxism and Pacifism, uh, their moral or ours. Uh, My name is uh, Stefan. I'm uh, with uh, the Swedish section of uh, the International Marxist Tendency. And it's my privilege uh, to chair today's uh, session, where we're looking forward to a number of contributions from experienced activists in uh, different sections of the IMT. From, uh, those of you, for those of you joining the school just now, you will note uh, pauses when people speak, including me. Uh, this is uh, because the school is actually translated into a dozen different uh, languages. Chinese, Spanish, all the main European languages, uh, really, so we have to give time for the comrades to translate what is being said. Uh, Now, to see the schedule for the school, go to the event page and uh, click the star button. You can find translations on the same page by clicking on the speech symbol. And our uh, main speaker, in this session will be Ben Glinetsky from Socialist Appeal. And uh, he will be uh, speaking for uh, 90 minutes, including translation more or less. We will have a 25-minute break and then we have four uh, other comrades intervening. And uh, after that, uh, I will ask uh, Ben to sum up the discussion. So that's... Our plan for this session. So I should also say that Socialist Appeal is the British section of the IMT and uh, I will just uh, with those brief words hand it over to uh, Ben to introduce this important discussion. Welcome
1: Ben. Thank you Stefan. Okay comrades last year there was a revolution in Sudan. The revolutionary movement was very powerful it threatened a fundamental transformation of society and the total destruction of the old regime. The ruling military junta understood that the only way to preserve itself and crush this mass movement was to terrorise it. So they unleashed a militia called the Rapid Support Forces. This was a militia based on the most backward elements in society, and they rampaged through the protest areas, looting beating, raping and killing and the regime terrorized the movement's leaders into a deal which leaves the military effectively in control in Sudan today. Now the only way to stop the looting, beating, raping and killing, the only way that the aims of that revolution could have been carried through would have been to arm the working class, give them weapons to defend themselves set up committees of self-defence, and kill the militiamen. The working class needed to be armed by appealing to the ranks of the army to join the revolution and disarm the militias. Violence here was not an abstract question of theory or morals or philosophy. For the revolution, it was kill or be killed. Now, the leadership of the Sudanese revolution which to its credit went very far in organising the struggle, nevertheless sacrificed the revolution on the altar of pacifism. And it was congratulated for doing this by reformists and so-called lefts all over the world. One of these Sudanese leaders spoke at a conference of the Democratic Socialists of America last year. Jacobin magazine published an interview with her, and she said... One of the things that kept us alive is that we were peaceful. No matter how they tried to provoke us to use violence, people wouldn't. No matter how many times they tried to kill and rape girls and put us in prison, people have a lot of anger, disappointment, sadness, but we kept ourselves peaceful. It wasn't easy, but that's how it was. Now, these warm, pacifist sentiments are of little use to all those workers who were beaten, raped and killed fighting military dictatorship in Sudan. Nor are they useful to those who continue to suffer under it today. The events in Sudan last year prove, not in theory, but in practice, that pacifism is poison in the revolutionary movement. Now, this this civil war waged by the Sudanese military leaders against their own people, was to protect the interests of the Sudanese ruling class and the imperialists. And this is the same as the driving force behind modern war between nations. That is the clash between the different, the interests of different capitalist states, which in the last analysis are the interests of big banks and monopolies. The modern capitalist state, which wages war, and it wages war now against its own people, now against a rival state, At all times, it is acting simply as a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. And that bourgeoisie requires violence. The natural evolution of a system of production for exchange has created the concentration of wealth and the monopolization of the forces of production by a tiny handful of people. And this produces antagonisms between classes as the ruling class tries to maintain the exploitation of the workers, and between different cliques of bourgeois represented by their own nation-states driven by capitalist competition. Now, the capitalist class has many weapons at its disposal to fight the workers of its own nation and the capitalists of other nations, uh, such as propaganda or diplomacy. But in the final analysis, history shows us That naked force is the only method by which capitalism can temporarily resolve its contradictions and maintain itself. Uh, And this is important, write this bit down. War is not an external aberration to capitalism. It's not a mistake and it's not an accident. It is built into its foundations. Throughout history, the aim of any ruling class has always been economic advantage. Force has only ever been a means to achieve that. War is waged not for its own sake, but to conquer new markets, raw materials and spheres of influence. The famous military theorist, Clausewitz, he said that war is the continuation of politics by other means. And politics, as Lenin said, is concentrated economics. So the laws and the logic of war, politics and economics are not separate. They are intertwined. Ten minutes, man. Leon Trotsky pointed out that the aims of an imperialist peace are no different to those of an imperialist war. Capitalist states, even in peacetime, are organised systems of violence for the exploitation and oppression of the majority by the minority through the police, the army, the courts and the prisons. These violent methods of class rule to preserve Bourgeois interests domestically, they find their twin in wars abroad. So, what conclusion do we draw from this? Only the overthrow of the capitalist system and class society can put an end to war. Using class struggle, we must break the repressive forces of the bourgeois class, whether they're used domestically or internationally. This is our policy, both in times of capitalist peace and in times of capitalist war. In times of bourgeois peace, we might use strikes, for example, to split the workers from the bosses. Eventually, with strike committees and workers' councils as alternatives to bourgeois state power, we would demand the nationalisation under workers' control of key industries and many other things. This is how we break the repressive power of the ruling class. In times of imperialist war, our policies have the exact same aim, adapted to the different circumstances. In the Second World War, our tendency was the only one to avoid either impotent pacifism or reactionary chauvinism. The British Communist Party, by contrast, adopted both the positions of pacifism and chauvinism, one after the other, both of which isolated them from the advanced working class in Britain. We adopted what was known as the proletarian military policy. The British workers at that time instinctively understood the threat posed by fascism to the working class, and they wanted to fight Hitler. And we encouraged this, but without making any concessions or giving any support to Churchill or the British ruling class. We agitated for strikes among workers against the big capitalists profiting from the war effort. We called the workers to arms to join the struggle against the Nazi armies, but then also agitated among the soldiers for their democratic rights, against Churchill's use of the British army against Greek partisans, for example. At all times, we exposed the imperialist character of the British ruling class. We aim to break the repressive power of the ruling class by breaking the commanding rule of the officers in the army. Our policy towards war, then, was not pacifist, but it was designed to smash capitalist militarism. I didn't get any Spanish translation on that. I don't
0: know if that's a problem with me. Uh, ben, I can still hear the Spanish uh, translation. It might be a problem on your end. Okay, one second. Apologies, comrades.
1: Okay. Could a Spanish translator say something for me? Yes, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Sorry about that. <clears throat> um, right, so... In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels explain the connection between war and class struggle. They say, in proportion as the exploitation of one individual by another will be put an end to, the exploitation of one nation by another will also be put an end to. In proportion as the antagonism between classes within the nation vanishes, the hostility of one na- nation to another will Will come to an end. What this means is that we are for class struggle and the proletarian socialist revolution in our own countries. 20 minutes have gone. At all times, unlike the pacifists, for whom class struggle is secondary in a situation of war. We aim to strengthen the class struggle in times of peace and in times of war. Naturally, we use different methods dictated by the circumstances but always with the aim of weakening or breaking the repressive forces of the bourgeois class. Now, the war which should have been waged by the Sudanese revolution against the military junta could have broken those repressive forces. And so, despite the violence and the bloodshed that would have caused, which we condemn as an inevitable product of class society, such a war would nevertheless have been historically progressive. because. We're not for or against war in general. We base our policy on any given concrete war. Wars waged for the liberation of oppressed people and classes are progressive and we support them. But wars waged in the interests of imperialism, even if they are described as defensive or for the right of nations to self-determination, are reactionary and we oppose them. And this is important. Write this down also the violence used by the slave owner to keep a slave in chains is not the same for us as the violence used by the slave to break those chains. All of these ideas are a closed book to pacifists who see non-violence as a moral norm obligatory upon all people for all time. But society is not governed by fixed or abstract morality. It is governed by the struggle of living historical forces expressed through classes. Now, part of the role of Marxists is to expose the causes of war and to analyse any given war's historical significance and to tell the truth to the working class about capitalism and imperialism. Meanwhile, the ruling class deliberately obscures the objective basis for war. They appeal to the abstract idea of pacifism, as a a calculated deception to mask the real class-based nature of their actions. In 2003, George Bush and Tony Blair said that they wanted to invade Iraq to destroy weapons of mass destruction and secure world peace. In fact, the Iraq war was about oil and nothing to do with peace. Similarly, Woodrow Wilson won the 1916 US presidential election on a pacifist program, Woodrow Wilson. Now, it suited the U.S. ruling class to avoid war at that time so that it could profit further from arms sales and profit generally from the war. Wilson's slogan of peace hid imperialist interests. But within a year, the interests of U.S. imperialism had changed. And that same pacifist led the United States into the First World War. This is the cynicism with which the ruling class treats the idea of pacifism. The Marxists see through this hypocrisy, but the petty bourgeoisie and the reformists do not. They believe the lies of the bourgeois about their desire for peace, and they consider war to be the product not of the insoluble contradictions of capitalism, but of individual madness or mistakes, This is why the leaders of the Second International, so-called Marxists leading social democratic parties, voted in favour of the First World War, because they believed the propaganda of their own ruling classes that they were fighting a defensive war for peace against bloodthirsty foreign enemies. And this is also why Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labour Party in the UK, has swallowed the bourgeois lie that the United Nations is a force for peace, capable of persuading imperialists to avoid war.
0: 30 minutes, gone.
1: Reformists believe that the ruling class can be persuaded not to go to war for the same reason why they believe that capitalists can be persuaded to grant economic concessions to the working class. Fundamentally, they, they replace a materialist analysis of society with philosophical idealism. They do not understand how the capitalist system really works that it cannot afford concessions or peace in a time of crisis. Those leaders of the Second International adapted themselves to conditions of capitalist upswing prior to 1914. And that upswing softened relations between classes and between nations. There were enough profits to keep the imperialists happy and even to afford some concessions for the working class. So everybody was happy. The social democratic leaders therefore believed that capitalism had resolved its contradictions. They saw struggle between classes and between nations as external to and unnecessary for development. And and Jeremy Corbyn's ideas likewise are the product of the post-war boom, a period in which class antagonisms were less acute. He believes that austerity and war, therefore, are purely ideological questions untouched by the laws of capitalist development and crisis. But the point is, capitalism cannot resolve its contradictions. It can only temporarily overcome them for a period of time, such as the years before 1914 or the years after the Second World, Second World War. But when the contradictions inevitably rise to the surface, as they did in 1914, for example, struggle again becomes necessary between classes and between nations and under those circumstances those reformists who have adapted themselves to class compromise and gentle international diplomacy they find the ground cut away from under them but they still try to cling to that position of independence separation from struggle and they therefore adopt the idea for which there is no basis in theory or practice that it is possible to secure peace by methods outside of the class struggle and the socialist revolution, such as pressure, for example, pressure on the imperialists. They do this and they call themselves pacifists. In reality, of course, any real pressure for peace has only ever been the result of the revolutionary struggle of the working class for power. It was not liberal petitions, but the October Revolution in 1917, which extracted the Russian workers and peasants from the First World War. It was not pacifist pleading but the German revolution of 1918 which brought that war to its conclusion and it was not moral pressure but revolutionary councils of action and a dock workers strike which forced the British to withdraw the army from invading Soviet Russia in 1920. So what what flows from this understanding of pacifism? Pacifism as Trotsky said is nothing more than the servant of imperialism Pacifists help imperialists cover up their crimes by painting them as ideological mistakes by individuals instead of the inevitable product of capitalism and imperialism. Pacifism provides an outlet for discontent while guaranteeing no real opposition. The United Nations embodies this pacifist impotence. It is a circus where small nations air their grievances, while the big ones veto anything which goes against their interests. The General Assembly of the United Nations has repeatedly approved resolutions condemning Israel's violence in Palestine, only to have them vetoed by the United States in the Security Council. What a mockery of the UN's so-called peacekeeping role. And equally, the United Nations is powerless to prevent the big powers going to war whenever they want to. The 1999 bombing campaign by NATO against Kosovo did not have UN approval, nor did the invasion of Iraq in 2003 by the United States and the United Kingdom. In 1960, the UN sent a peacekeeping force to what is now Democratic Republic of Congo. And that resulted in the murder of Patrice Lumumba, the Congolese prime minister, and the dictatorship of Mobutu, who was a tool of imperialism. This is the powerlessness of the United Nations. The UN is an elaborate display of pacifism, which is completely hollow on the inside. And pacifists who celebrate the United Nations are consciously or unconsciously servants of the imperialist interests, which it conceals.
0: Forty minutes.
1: They encourage the dangerous illusion that fundamental contradictions within the capitalist system are simply ideological points of view which can be changed by persuasion. Now, Leon Trotsky was, sorry, that, that doesn't need translation, um, was merciless in his criticism of pacifists, who he saw as diverting the attention of the masses away from the real processes at work in society. He explained that you do not eliminate the danger of war by, for example, disarmament. This pacifist slogan, disarmament. He said, a program of disarmament, while imperialist antagonisms survive, is the most pernicious of fictions. The imperialists do not make war because there are armaments. On the contrary, they forge arms when they need to fight. And we could say the same thing of NATO or other imperialist alliances. Some pacifists advocate dismantling NATO to avoid war. But is it military alliances which cause war, or is it the inevitable capitalistic tendency towards war which makes imperialist alliances necessary? Abolishing NATO will not resolve the fundamental contradictions of capitalism, and it is those which are the driving force behind war. The pacifists mistake cause for effect. So against the pacifists, the Marxists say... We can only fight imperialist war with civil war against the capitalist class. Our slogan is not for peace, but for class war. Our enemies are not the workers of other nations, but the international bourgeoisie, starting with the ruling class of our own countries. This is the finished programme of Marxism. But we must connect this finished program with the mood of the masses at any given time, which is unfinished, confused, contradictory. So in most cases, the desire for peace among workers is healthy. It's not, it's not reactionary pacifism. Uh, it's a healthy reaction against imperialism and bourgeois hypocrisy. Our, our role then is to point out the hypocrisy of the bourgeoisie when they talk about peace. And explain that the capitalist class has never been a reliable guarantor of peace. Because capitalist competition between national bourgeois cliques inevitably leads to war. We also want peace. But only a worker's state in our country and all others can guarantee it. And that requires class struggle. Around, for example, transitional demands such as those put forward by our tendency in Britain in the past. Like state expenditure on public works instead of on weapons like the nationalization under workers control of the armaments industry or like military bases being brought under the democratic control of the working class. So just because workers desire peace it doesn't make them necessarily reactionary pacifists and likewise if workers have a desire to fight that is also not necessarily reactionary such as the mood among workers to fight Hitler in the Second World War, or the mood among the masses of an oppressed nation to fight for self-determination. In such situations, the proletarian military policy that I described earlier must be applied. And this also requires class struggle around specific demands, such as strike action against war profiteers. Fifty minutes. Fifty minutes. And it requires us to try and split the ranks of the army away from the bourgeois or petty bourgeois officers of the army. So in all cases, whether the mood of the masses is for peace or for war and taking into account all the historical and local peculiarities, we must aim to break capitalist militarism and highlight the need for the working class to pursue a policy independent of the interests of their own capitalist class. And where this happens, even in a limited form, it can have a very big effect. Last year, a Saudi ship docked in the Italian port of Genoa to collect weapons for use in its imperialist war against Yemen. The dock workers went on strike and refused to load the weapons. The Italian Trade Union Confederation supported the strike making other Italian ports also off-limits for the Saudi ship. And so the ship left empty. So class struggle struck a greater blow against imperialist war than any liberal pacifist NGO had been able to do. The imperialists understand this power that the working class has. It was, it was bourgeois fear of mass domestic discontent which prevented a ground invasion of Kosovo in 1999 and which prevented the bombing of Syria by the UK in 2013. One of the reasons behind more peaceful relations between the USA and the Soviet Union in the late 1980s was the fear of revolutionary upsurge in the super-exploited ex-colonial countries. And the Vietnam War was lost for the United States, not only in Vietnam, but in the United States itself when the majority turned against it. This is the power of the working class struggle to disrupt the imperialists' plans. So Marxists want to turn imperialist wars into civil wars, and we consider the wars to liberate oppressed nations and classes to be historically justified. We have no abstract moral opposition to violence. But does that mean that all methods of waging these wars are permissible from a Marxist point of view? No. For example, individual terrorism and guerrilla struggle on their own and disconnected from a mass movement do not strengthen the class struggle. They substitute the actions of a minority or even just an individual for the collective action of class struggle it doesn't strengthen the confidence of the masses in themselves as the only force that can overthrow class society. And in fact, it strengthens the repressive apparatus of the state, which adopts harsher powers and methods for dealing with so-called terrorists. So, so these methods actually only strengthen the forces of bourgeois violence. Now, our approach to such methods of struggle is not a moralistic question, it's a tactical one. Only those methods of struggle which make the working class conscious of its role in changing society should be used. For decades, the appalling violence of the Israeli state against Palestine has been met by acts of individual terror. But these have failed to destroy or even to weaken the state of Israel. A mass appeal to the workers of Israel by a revolutionary Palestinian leadership, would have had a far greater effect. There are huge protests taking place in Israel now. The country is not one reactionary mass. It's divided into classes. 60 minutes. Israel has national service, which has the potential to be a transmission belt for the mood of the Israeli youth into the army. But instead of basing itself on mass methods of struggle... The Palestinian leadership has too often based itself on terror. The first intifada, which began in 1987, had a mass character, but it took place over the heads of the PLO leaders. As well as mobilising the Palestinian masses, it it had some limited effect in Israel itself, and it led to real results with the Oslo Accords, although they solved nothing fundamental. This is the way to fight. Instead of these methods, the focus on terror has, has widened the gap between Palestinians and those Israeli workers and youth who could have been won over. And today, the idea of splitting the Israeli army is very, very distant, if not impossible. Now, in the future, this could change. But this is the legacy of individual terrorist violence disconnected from an organised mass movement. It has weakened the Palestinian struggle. So in, in general terms, we are opposed on the one hand, to the pacifist slogan of disarmament, and on the other hand, we're opposed to individual terror or guerrillaism. Against both of those, we counterpose independence in the industrial and political policies of the working class, which requires the arming of the masses and the splitting of the army and the winning of the army ranks to the working class struggle. Now, the petty bourgeois and the reformists... They say that arming the masses and splitting the army is unrealistic, but it has happened repeatedly in, re- in revolutionary situations all over the world and throughout history. In 2002, an attempted coup against the Venezuelan president, Hugo Chavez, was thwarted, <clears throat> sorry, was thwarted where the ranks of the army broke with their officers. Under pressure from the mass movement, they sided with the masses. In Italy, sorry, in Italy, there were factory occupations by workers in 1920. One newspaper reported the workers number former military pilots in their ranks who yesterday brought aircraft into action. One state official wrote a report. He said, it seems the occupiers have machine guns. They claim to have armed a tank built at the Fiat car plant. Now, these Red Guards were not simply armed individuals. They were organized groups of workers under the democratic control of the workers' organizations occupying the factories via an elected military committee. Another example. In 1956, there was a revolution in Hungary against Stalinism and for genuine workers' democracy, not for a return to capitalism. The Soviet Union invaded Hungary to put down the revolution. And this is an eyewitness account from the chief of police in Budapest. We saw an immense crowd arrive on the street. We saw three large Soviet tanks coming from the opposite direction, straight towards the crowd. It was like a nightmare. The tanks arrived on the street. The tank soldiers saw the crowd and the crowd saw the tanks. The tanks stopped and stayed in place, motors still running. The crowd, the crowd, the crowd, crowd it kept coming, swarming around the tanks. A boy pushed his way through the crowd to the first tank and pushed something through the loophole.
0: 70 minutes, 20 minutes left.
1: It wasn't a grenade, but a sheet of paper. It was followed by others. These sheets were notes in Russian, which started with a citation from Marx. A people that oppresses another cannot itself be free. We counted the minutes but nothing happened. Then the top of the lead tank opened a little and the commander emerged slowly. Then he flung the turret open and sat on the top of his tank. Immediately, hands reached out to him. Young people leapt up on the tank. The crowd erupted in frantic cheering. The crowd sung the Hungarian national anthem and at the tops of their voices, they cried, long live the Soviet army. Yet these were the same people who, 15 minutes earlier, had determinedly chanted, Russians go home. My deputy and I exchanged glances. Although we were soldiers, the theory of our movement bypassed caste, nationality, personal interest and prejudice. A word from Marx passed through a loophole was stronger than a tank directed against a crowd. So we should never let pacifists tell us that we are unrealistic when we demand the arming of the working class and the splitting of the army. It has been done and it can be done again, and it is proven to be the only way to fight imperialist methods of war. But we should also emphasise that the splitting of the army is not a one-act drama. It must be pursued as a conscious policy and not left purely to the spontaneity of the masses, which can only have a temporary impact, as it did in Venezuela, in Italy and in Hungary. The struggle to shatter the repressive forces of the bourgeois class requires continuous organisation and strategy in the political, industrial and military spheres. And that includes, for example, elected soldiers committees to solidify and and widen the break between the ranks and the officers. This was the policy pursued by the Bolsheviks in 1917, who agitated in the trenches and in the barracks, And this way they drove a wedge between the army ranks and the officers, and they shattered the ability of the Russian ruling class to fight either the imperialist First World War or to crush the revolution. Now, do do nuclear weapons change the Marxist approach to peace and war? Why should we win over the soldiers and arm the workers, for example, when a nuclear Third World War could be started by a handful of generals? We must remember that war is waged for material gain. Nuclear war will not bring economic gain. It will just bring total destruction. It does not conquer new markets. It destroys them. There has not been a third world war uh, now yet, not because the imperialists have been convinced of pacifism, nor because the contradictions of capitalism have been overcome, but because it is not in their economic interests to wage such a war. But the biggest check on nuclear world war is the working class struggle. Such a global and destructive war would provoke the mightiest backlash by the workers of the world that we have ever seen. The First World War provoked proletarian revolution in several countries against the imperialists and their wars. And today, the international working class is bigger and much more experienced than it was 100 years ago. The balance of class forces, therefore, is more in our favour today than at any other time in history. And that doesn't mean that that small, barbaric proxy wars, such as Ukraine in 2014 or Syria since 2011, doesn't mean that they won't take place. They will still take place. As long as capitalism exists, its contradictions will lead to war. The belligerents may not be imperialist powers, and they may not have even directly competing economic interests. But imperialist powers generally stand behind such combatants and through them pursue their interests. A direct clash between the major powers is currently ruled out, but this will only intensify the barbarity of proxy wars between nations and of class wars within nations and against oppressed groups and oppressed nations such as the Kurds, for example. But a direct confrontation between imperialist powers is not ruled out forever. Unchecked by the power of the working class and out of desperation, the USA, for example, the US bourgeois, could look seriously at first strike policy against a rival imperialist nation. But before such a possibility could arise, titanic class struggles will take place. The working class will have the opportunity to take power many times before it can be smashed to the extent that it would not be a check on imperialist warmongering. Such a perspective cannot be excluded in the long term if we fail to take power. But, as I said, the balance of class forces is on our side. The final question I would like to deal with is, will socialist revolution in the modern epoch necessarily be violent?
0: Five minutes left.
1: Force can play a revolutionary role in history. It is through clash and contradiction that society develops, that is through war and revolution. No ruling class in history has ever given up its position without a fight. Capitalist society is based fundamentally on force and coercion, and force will be required to remove it. But does force necessarily mean violence? The ancient Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu wrote in his book The Art of War that those who render other armies helpless without fighting are the best of all. In other words, it is possible and preferable to win the fight with an overwhelming show of force right from the start to render the bourgeoisie incapable of fighting at all. That requires using our superiority in the class balance of forces. It requires splitting the army away from, uh, splitting the army ranks away from the officers and arming the working class. And we should study France in 1968 or the 1917 October Revolution in Petrograd and other examples of revolutionary, of revolutionary movements whose force was so overwhelming that violent opposition simply melted away this policy requires an absolute purge of pacifism from the revolutionary movement. We must be willing to fight to the end with violence if it is necessary. We hope that it's not, but if it is, we will do so. Our motto is the same as, as the 19th century Chartist movement in Britain. Peacefully if we can, forcefully if we must. So finally, to conclude... War and violence between classes and between nations are an inherent part of the capitalist system. Petitions, debates, the United Nations, these cannot stop the functioning of the capitalist system. And so they cannot stop war. Only the proletarian socialist revolution can do that. Pacifist morality is empty and it is poisonous to the revolutionary movement. Ours is a higher morality based on the march of historical progress. And and this is important, write this down. The only just war is the class war. The only just means of waging it are those which really lead to the liberation of mankind. This is not an abstract question, nor is it confined to one or two countries like Sudan or Palestine. The need for revolutionary force arose in the insurrectionary movement in Chile last year, and it is present in the USA's Black Lives Matter movement today. It will arise in every single country in the coming period without exception, and we must be ideologically prepared to confront it. Thank you very much for listening, comrades.
0: Thank you, uh, Ben, for that uh, excellent introduction to this topic. We will soon have a 22-minute break. Uh, just to highlight that we have welcomed uh, thousands of comrades from all over the world, really. Uh, I've been uh, told that we have had another 200 sign up for this event just in the last day. Uh, to push this uh, uh, for, the, for the last day, or to put this event on the map in an even bigger way. And uh, to show the width of this uh, event and the wide international participation. Uh, please continue posting photos on social media. Use uh, the hashtags uh, MarxistUniversity, IMU, and IMU2020. The break is uh, 22 minutes, 2-2 until 3 p.m. UK time. Thank you, comrades. Welcome uh, back, comrades. Uh, before we start the session, I have an important uh, announcement uh, to make. Uh, our comrade Amin... An active member of the Pakistani Progressive Youth Alliance in Karachi was uh, criminally abducted from his home by the paramilitary uh, rangers on uh, July the 14th. We still don't know his whereabouts, not even the court, so judges knows where he is. Of course, uh, we are organizing a solidarity campaign uh, to unconditionally and immediately get our comrade released. He had carried out no crime, and uh, his only crime was to speak up against injustice in Pakistan. We appeal to uh, comrades in different countries and the workers of the world to protest against this uh, crime by the Pakistani state. Please organize protests locally where you are. Post videos and photos in social media. We note that that, uh, the Rangers has a disgusting track record of torture, or even uh, uh, ending the lives of people. So this is an urgent appeal of uh, solidarity with uh, uh, comrade Amin. Please use the hashtags Release Amin, Stop State Abductions in Pakistan, and IMU 2020. And let's organize a strong campaign. Read more on marxist.com about this. And uh, I think that uh, this also sets uh, this session in a very... Uh, serious light revolutionary politics is uh, not a game but very serious business Uh, and uh, i think uh, that uh, that's the purpose of this discussion to arm ourselves for the struggle but also to uh, highlight the need for marxist theory in the struggle so i would like to recommend comrades to read trotsky's text their moral and ours and uh, you can uh, buy that uh, book on uh, wellreadbooks.net which is uh, the publishing arm of uh, the International Marxist Tendency. The first speaker will be Rob Lyon from uh, Fightback IMT in Canada.
2: Welcome, Rob. Uh, Thank you, comrades. Uh, Ben said something really important when he said that we cannot equate the violence of the slave owners to keep the slaves in chains with the violence of the slaves to break those chains. The violence of the slave owners is reactionary and the violence of the slaves is progressive. Pacifism operates on the basis of absolute moral imperatives. It strives for the absolute good of peace and nonviolence and abhors the absolute evil of violence regardless of circumstance. I think most people would agree that employing violence to defend one's life or the life of another person is not a bad or evil thing. And likewise, not taking action, not using violence to save a life may not be justifiable. I think it would be morally questionable for somebody who could have saved a life to say that they did not do so all for the sake of preserving some abstract moral principle of nonviolence. If we look at pacifism in the context of protest movements and strikes, for example, we can see that it can only have reactionary consequences because it ultimately serves the interests of the ruling class. The pacifists basically say you can protest or go on strike, but it must remain peaceful at all costs. But what this really means is that you can can protest or go on strike, but nothing more. Pacifism does not offer the working class a means of resisting or overcoming the violence of the capitalist class. And pacifism thus denies on moral grounds revolutionary self-defense or action on the part of the working class from the beginning, which really means maintaining the status quo. Workers on strike have a right to defend their picket lines. And if they didn't defend themselves, winning a strike would be very difficult. <clears throat> and likewise, protests and marches have the right to defend themselves from fascist thugs and the police. I am no longer hearing the translation.
0: We seem to be having a problem in translation.
2: Oh, okay, yeah. I wanted okay. to make sure it wasn't just me.
0: Uh, Rob, can you hear the translation now? Because I'm picking it up.
2: Uh, no, I can't actually. Uh, give me one second.
0: We'll see if it's a problem on your side. Restart.
2: Can, yeah, I just did that. Can someone, can the translator speak again? Sorry, guys. Yes, I can. Yeah. Uh, where was I now? Okay. So if the movement, if a protest movement doesn't defend itself, it's very easy for the ruling class to intimidate the movement into silence or to smash it and defeat it. And this is what Donald Trump is trying to do right now with the Black Lives uh, Matter movement in the United States. He wants to terrorize the movement and terrify everybody into going home. Now, if we genuinely want to change society, this means that revolutionary action or force will likely, at least at a certain point, need to be used. Good or bad, this is the nature of history, the nature of, of class struggle. Now, we are not bloodthirsty, and we don't think that violent tactics must be employed everywhere and at all times. Five we would prefer if everything could be peaceful. But in reality, this is not always possible. As Ben said, our approach to the question of violence in the class struggle is not a moralistic one, but a tactical one. There are times when a non-violent approach is the way to go, and there are times when more forceful or violent methods are necessary. It depends on the circumstances, the level of organization of the movement, the stage of the class struggle, etc., etc. One thing we do know is that no ruling class in history has ever given up its power and privileges without a fight, a serious fight. All of human history very clearly demonstrates this. Historically speaking, this is why revolutions are necessary. The power and privileges of the ruling class must be forcibly taken away from them. And likewise, the new freedoms and rights of the revolutionary class, the new society, must be forcibly established and imposed. (laughs) Rights and freedoms have not been won by the oppressed by politely asking for them, but have been won through struggle through determined militant action. This was the case with the right to strike, the right to free assembly, the right to vote, the right to an eight-hour day, and on and on. Now, if we take the Black, Lives movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States, we can see that these abstract, absolute moral principles of pacifism can have reactionary consequences. The pacifists say that all violence is bad, so they basically equate any violence on the part of the poor and the oppressed with the violence of the state, the police, the National Guard, and so on. However, this moral equivalence only lends itself to the arguments of the right wing. Fox News anchors see a small fire at a courthouse in Portland and then use this to morally justify the brutally violent attacks of Homeland Security agents on protesters. Tactically speaking, the riots and the looting that we saw in the early days of the uprising following the death of George Floyd did not necessarily serve the interests of the movement at that time. But does this mean that we condemn this violence or equate it with the violence of the ruling class in the states? No, of course not. We stand firmly with the exploited and the oppressed. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, a riot is the language of the unheard. When the poor, the downtrodden, the exploited express their despair and hopelessness in the utter rage of a riot, it is perfectly understandable from the point of view of Marxism. When people express their rage at the brutal violence of 400 years of slavery, capitalist exploitation, Jim Crow laws, racism, police brutality, it is totally understandable. And how can these expressions of the rage and despair of the exploited, fighting for justice and equality, fighting for a new world, how can this be compared with the violence of the state in an effort to stop this struggle for justice and equality, which can only be reactionary? How is sorry? How is the burning down of a police station equal to the decades and decades of police violence, racism and brutality? And where is the real violence coming from anyway? Aside from those early riots in some places, the protests have been almost entirely peaceful across the entire United States. If the police had just stayed at home, there would have been very little to no violence. So I'd just like to finish with a quote uh, by Mark Twain from a a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, where where he talks about the reign of terror in the French Revolution. But I think it has broad applicability on this question of pacifism and violence in, in, in the class struggle in general. He said... Uh, there were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember it and consider it. The one brought murder in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other had lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon 10,000 persons, the other upon a hundred millions. But our shutters are all, are, are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Okay. Uh, whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with lifelong death from hunger? Cold and heartbreak, cruelty and heartbreak. What is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror, but all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves. Thank you very much, comrades.
0: <clears throat> Thank you, Rob, for that intervention. Uh, next uh, speaker is uh, Jules from IMT in France. Sorry, I can't translate your last name, Legender. Uh, go ahead, Jules.
3: Thank you, comrade. Uh, the topic of self-defense is of a crucial importance for the workers' movement. As Ben explained, bourgeoisie never hesitated to use violence against workers' mobilization and added to the violence of police, army, and the state. There is also the violence of the far-right, the fascists, groups of radicalized lumpens and petit bourgeois that that are used by the ruling class as a hammer against the working class. In the 1920s and 30s, they were used to crush the revolutionary movement as it was going down, and in several countries, The bourgeoisie even gave power to these groups. At the time, they had become mass movement of hundreds of thousands of members and put to power, they liquidated the organizations of the working class. Uh, This question is taking a new importance today. Uh, Since the crisis of 2008, uh, radicalization expressed itself on the left and on the right, and fascist groups are on the rise. Main difference with the past is they can no longer hope, they can no longer hope to rise themselves to power, and that is to disagree with the screams of the ultra left. We see fascists and fascism at every corner, and this difference is mainly caused because they are lacking the social basis that was giving them strength in the, 20, in the 20s and 30s. Peasantry, middle class, disappeared in most countries. And moreover, uh, stratas, social groups that were inclined to fascism, have been proletarized. Students, civil servants, etc. This can be seen, in fact, at every big anti-fascist demonstration. Each time, the fascists are completely outnumbered by their opponents. But even, even if they can no longer be in power, put themselves in power, fascists, fascists are still a threat to the working class. During the recent period there have been multiple attacks of fascists uh, against the general population or the workers' movement. In Charlottesville, in Christchurch, El Paso, Frankfurt. Uh, in Austin, uh, Texas, this Sunday, this Sunday a protester was shot dead by a fascist who ran his car in a BLM demonstration. This is a threat that needs to be addressed by the workers' movement. And for the reformist leadership, the solution is simple. They ask for the state, for the judiciary, for the police, to protect them and to repress and outlaw fascist groups. And this is a mistake for so many reasons. And the first is because it's not working. The bourgeois state need these groups as a strike force against the working class, as a suppletive force, in fact, to supplement the force of the police. And not only did the bourgeois state do nothing to prevent the attack, uh, which I talk about, but its main leaders, from Trump to Macron, and speakers on TV and in the papers, encouraged these attacks, more or less openly. A few weeks ago, uh, after a a a fascist attack with cars against manifest uh, demonstration, a mayor in the US, a city mayor, read a list of activists in public with names and addresses, in fact designating targets to fascist terrors. And the state and police, in fact, protect these groups instead of repressing them. And even when they are compelled to act against them the way they do it don't work legal, de- le- uh, legal dissolution is of no use with such things in france uh, the two main fascist organizations active today have, born, uh, have both been dissolved numerous times one time one of these had been dissolved because one of its members tried to kill the president but each time they just change their name and continue with their business as usual. And the second and most important uh, reason is that this policy disarms workers. It push, pushes them to trust the bourgeois state, Ten minutes. to believe that it is neutral and that it can be used in their interest. But as Marx, Engels, Lenin and every other Marx, uh, great Marxist, and as the whole history of the class society demonstrates, the state is not a neutral thing. It cannot serve the interest of the working class if it is a bourgeois state. And this is one of the main issues with this policy. A, minori- a minority of activists uh, uh, reacting to these politics uh, looked for solutions in a kind of ultra-left caricature. Uh, kind of uh, anti-fascist groups specialized in anti-fascist action, but they're very often uh, reduced to very small groups fighting fascists on a one-on-one basis. And this is also often linked to a very sectarian at- attitude toward mass organizations.
0: 13 minutes.
3: And in practice, what these activists are seeing is exactly clear the same thing as the reformist leaders. To the workers, they say, the physical fight against fascists is a bad thing, a bad thing for you. You should let the police or the anarchists take care of it. In reality, what is lacking is not numbers, it is organization. It can be seen in the very nature of the attacks of the fascists. Isolated individuals attacking mass of demonstrators or people in the streets, not organized fascist groups, always isolated individuals attacking. What is needed is an organization of the self-defense of the movement by the movement itself, linked to the mass movement and to the working class organization. This is the responsibility of the working class organization to set up armed self-defense committees.
0: Please.
3: This is the only solution to send the fascist murderers or aspiring murderers crawling back into their dens. In a lot of cases, a simple show of force, in fact, will be sufficient to stop the attacks before they occur. But it is not sufficient to defend itself. We need also to go we need also to go on the offensive. And this organization of self defence committees, this self defence work can only Eliminate fascism if it eliminates its its, if it fights against its cause causes. That is the scarcity under capitalism. This work needs, in fact, to be linked with a revolutionary struggle for socialism, because only the liquidation of capitalism can make fascist violence disappear. And contrary to their crazy dreams, uh, crazy dreams, fascists are not the future. We are. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jill, for that intervention. Uh, the next uh, speaker is uh, Niklas Albine Svensson from the IMT. Welcome, Niklas.
4: Thank you, uh, comrades. Uh, thank you for an interesting discussion. Uh, Trotsky, in his debates with the centrists in the 1930s, uh, centrists in the 1930s, entered into polemic on the question of war and populism, uh, war and pacifism, sorry. And the centrists of the SAP uh, had just voted a very pompous anti-war resolution at one of their international conferences, and Trotsky took them up sharply. Like uh, many pacifists at that time, uh, these supposed Marxists raised the question of disarmament. Uh, And uh, like uh, Ben described, as long as oppression and exploitation exist, weapons will remain a factor in the relations between states. Uh, Now, in this debate, Trotsky wrote to advance disarmament as the sole real method of preventing war implies fooling the workers for the sake of achieving a common front with petty bourgeois pacifists. The resolution uh, that he criticized raised an appeal uh, to the opponents of the war world over. Like every anti-war movement, That drags out the priests and the conservatives, Uh, the more the merrier, Uh, and this happens in Britain a lot, where in where the SWP, who is supposedly Trotskyist, constantly drag out these reactionaries to in the name of peace. And Trotsky replied to this: the professional opponents of war are the Quakers, the the Quakers, the religious Quakers, the Christians, uh, the Tolstoyans followers of Tolstoy, the Gandists, and then too, there are the parlor pacifists, uh, the democratic windbags, the acrobats, and the charlatans. And I think that pretty much describes some of these anti-war rallies. And the front of these people would inevitably force the Marxists five minutes to abandon their own program, and would only serve to give political cover to these elements. And that's precisely what the SWP do in Britain all the time. Uh, We do not oppose war in principle. War is a constant fact of life under capitalism. It cannot be protested away. The only way to end war is to overthrow class society. And Trotsky again says, It is not an accident that the policy of the Comintern, as well as that of the reformists, uh, purely negative formulations predominate, like anti-imperialism, anti-fascism, anti-war struggle, without any class delimi- delim- delimitations, and without the revolutionary program of action. Such formulations are absolutely necessary for the policies of masquerade blocks. All these blocks and congresses and committees have as their task to screen the passivity, the cowardice and the incapacity to solve those tasks that compose the very essence of the class struggle of the proletariat that uh com- that uh, composed the very essence of the v- class struggle of the proletariat, so he raised uh, trotsky also raised the question of Simmerwald, where most of the participants were pacifists, most of them soon found themselves back inside the second international, and he said Lenin participated in the conference not to reach conciliation with the centrists, not to present hollow resolutions in that the comments, but the struggle for the principles of Bolshevism. Immediately after Simmerwald, Lenin posed to Simmerwald left, uh, the, the left of Simmerwald, the prospect of breaking with uh, Simmerwald, the right of the Simmerwald, if you will, and the building of a new international. Uh, Trotsky continued, 99% of the reformists and tra- centrists who are now harping on the pacifist phrases... Ten minutes. Will turn on the side of their governments in the end in the event of a war. Uh, just note how the entirety of the section in second international, almost the entirety of the second international, or their leaders anyway, were voting anti-war resolutions, even some very good uh, resolutions, but then voted for the war under pressure from their ruling class. And uh, speaking of pacifist windbags, we organized a debate some years ago with a Methodist, another Christian group, pacifist, theoretician. Uh, After some pretty phrases about peace, love, and understanding, he quickly came out with the usual anti-Bolshevik nonsense, uh, complaining about Bolshevik violence, complaining about uh, all the deaths in the middle of a civil war, well, not my dad. But he barely blushed when he admitted, moments later, that he had supported the war in Iraq, for democracy, of course. So like most pacifists, he argues pacifism for the poor and the oppressed, while supporting the violence of the imperialists and the oppressors. And as the other comrades have said, our position is the opposite. We oppose the violence of the oppressors, but we support the struggle of the oppressed against their oppressors.
0: 13 minutes.
4: With violence where necessary. And Trotsky continues. Today, in times of peace, a doubly strict revolutionary selection is necessary. The criteria for this selection are clarity in theory um, and a practice corresponding to theory. And that is also what we need today. We need political clarity. Thank you.
0: Thank you uh, very much, uh, Nicholas. And the next uh, speaker on my list uh, will be uh, Francesco Giuliani from IMT in Italy. So, welcome, Francesco.
5: Thank you, Stefan. Comrades, pacifism has always been an ideological poison for the revolutionary movement. In 1938, the world was, was heading rapidly toward a new imperialist war. The defeat of the Spanish Revolution had made it inevitable. During the Munich crisis of 1938, Trotsky was categorical. Those who wanted to come back to the so-called normality of the old world would uh, have no alternative but to choose between, quote, Pius prayer and pacifist bleating. Balidos. As pity bourgeois moralists, pacifists deemed Trotsky perspectives as equal to accept war. And they accused the Trotskyists to be immoral but the organic crisis of capitalism didn't allow any peaceful way out and it was a very practical question. Only a social explosion during or just after the war would have opened the way for the future of humanity once again. And Marxists had to prepare in the light of this perspective. On the contrary, when bourgeois governments and pacifists tried to appease German imperialism, the pacifists and the bourgeois governments. They resembled to childish games on the slopes of a volcano just ready to erupt. The war was imperialist and military budget had to be opposed. But Trotsky said, Empty slogans such as disarmament or neutrality served only the diplomacy of d- different sectors of the capitalist world. Trotsky's criticism of pacifism was directed at organization that refused to place the struggle for revolution within the universal militarization of society imposed by war, società Militarizada. Uh, it, it targeted in the first place the pacifism of the centrists, of the centrist parties, Five such as the British Independent Labour Party, the poem, the French PSOP, etc. For instance, the deputy leader of the Independent Labour Party, James Maxton, uh, crossed the class lines and praised the Prime Minister Chamberlain as the savior of peace for his appeasement toward Hitler. For Trotsky, the revolutionary had to find a way to reach the barracks, the military training camps, and the trenches. And a military transitional program was needed. The cadres of uh, the revolutionary party had uh, to understand that humanity entered an era in which all fundamental questions would have been solved with weapons in hands. Uh, the task of a revolutionary was to go through the test of war with their class. In a fundamental discussion with some leaders of the American section of the Foot International, Trotsky stated that, that the militarization of society was proceeding rapidly, even in the USA, and it was wrong to oppose it with pacifist phraseology. Moreover, it was necessary to take into account an elementary truth. Workers, quote, carry a sentimental hatred of Hitler mixed with confused class feelings. And since unions couldn't limit themselves to protect workers only in this time, Trotsky proposed that they should wage a campaign to demand that workers should be trained in military schools controlled by the unions and financed by the state and elect officers from the Euro- own ranks. This was an effective way to continue the fight against the bourgeois state and its militarism, even after the outbreak of the war. Marxist propaganda had to separate itself from committees like Keep American Out of War, where pacifism and reactionary isolationism intersected. Ten minutes. The pacifists accept everything of the bourgeois system except militarism. No collaboration on this basis is quite the contrary, quite the contrary. Uh, Trotsky's policy was based on the articulation between propaganda and agitation. Military training under union control and full political freedom for workers in uniform were part of a military program of transition. The Revolutionary Communist Party of Ted Grant applied the disorientation during the war and was capable of waging an excellent communist work within the British Army. In September 1945, Philby, Chief of Mi- British Military Intelligence and Double Agent for Stalin Intelligence, requested a report on the work of Trotsky's Dallied soldiers in Italy, which involved many RCT members. Trotsky's allied soldiers. On the contrary, bigger centrist parties didn't play an active role during the war, and they soon collapsed. To sum up, the position put forward by Trotsky 13 minutes. proved how a revolutionary party has to adapt itself to a situation of war, maintaining the focus on the perspective of overthrowing capitalism. A revolutionary party, in other words, cannot be an organization that fights for its program only in peaceful and not dangerous times. Thanks, comrades.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Francesco. Uh, I think we're getting a read that this has been a highly excellent discussion, very educating, and uh, that it has uh, whetted the appetite. To learn more about these highly important questions for revolutionaries, even in those countries where things uh, superficially seem calm now at the surface. Uh, I will now ask uh, Ben Glynetsky to come in and uh, sum up the discussion. So I'll hand it over to Ben. Thank you, Stefan. And thanks to the comrades who spoke.
1: Rob and Jules spoke of uh, workers' self-defense. Here in London a few weeks ago, The organizers of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations cancelled the demonstrations on one weekend because they had received threats from far right and fascist groups that they would uh, attack the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. In the name of maintaining peace, the demonstrations, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations were called off. And the result was that the far right was allowed to rampage through London with no real opposition. Now, is this a success or a failure for the progressive forces in society? It's a failure and it's the product of pacifism. The far right threatened violence and we desert the field of battle. Well, we don't, but they did. This this can only embolden the forces of reaction and and undermine and demoralize the progressive forces and for those who are who are directly threatened by the far right this pacifism leaves them vulnerable and open to attack because the far right are free to roam about unchallenged in this sense pacifism is a luxury for those who do not experience the the sharp end of reaction it's it's the idea's that come from the petty bourgeoisie. When when Nicholas was speaking about the the vagueness of pacifist blocs, it reminded me of a quote from Marx explaining the position of the petty bourgeoisie in society. Marx Marx said that the petty bourgeois is a transition class. In which the interests of two classes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, are simultaneously blunted, which softens the political positions uh, and the political clarity of the petty bourgeois. And so the petty, petty bourgeois imagine themselves elevated above the class, above class antagonism generally. And this is why their approach to pacifism is detached, vague, uh, not sharp in any way. We need a sharp policy based explicitly and consciously on the needs of the working class. And that requires countering the, the fascist threats of violence with our own violence if necessary. Rob also spoke of the riot being the language of the unheard.
0: 15 minutes remaining. And this is very important.
1: Because if we wait for a mass movement to appear with the perfect policy towards violence before we place ourselves on its side, then we will be waiting forever. Because the the finished program of Marxism is the product of many historical examples of class struggle over a very long time. And our job is to connect that programme with the unfinished mood uh, and actions of the masses in struggle. Just because the Black Lives Matter movement or 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 a guerrilla war in a in a in a dominated country, just just because the masses do not adopt our tactics immediately does not mean that we condemn the movement or refuse to engage with it if we have a historically progressive movement then we must find a way to connect with it taking the mood of the masses and the the history and the peculiarities of that uh, particular place or that particular movement fully into account and and skillfully connecting our ideas patiently explaining our ideas as francesco described in, in relation to trotsky's tactics Jules spoke about uh, dissolving fascist groups legally and and why that was uh, a bad tactic or bad policy. And this is right, because such a policy fails to see fascism as a product of the decaying capitalist system. Just as you cannot wish away war under capitalism, you can't simply ban fascism. Fascism and fascist tendencies arise as the capitalist system is unable to support bourgeois democracy, although it can only acquire a mass basis after the defeats of the working class, after major defeats of the working class. But democracy and pacifism are of the same, bourgeois democracy and pacifism are of the same political lineage. They're part of the same family.
0: Ten minutes left.
1: Both try to soften class relations without actually uh, without actually touching the economic foundations of those classes of that class division. The logic of capitalism causes class contradictions to sharpen at certain points. That's that's capitalist crisis, and under those circumstances, the safety valves of bourgeois democracy, for example, begin to explode. They can't contain the the rising contradiction within capitalism. They can't soften, they can't gloss over, they can't soften that relation anymore. And this is the beginning of the road towards uh, fascist tendencies, although, as I say, it requires defeats of the working class before it can acquire a mass basis. And likewise, you see the same process of safety valves exploding the safety valves of pacifism under these circumstances the antagonism between different national cliques of bourgeois sharpens and so you get diplomatic crisis and war so questions of of fascism and pacifism and war and violence these are all linked these are all part of the same process Nicholas spoke about the need for political clarity in these ideas. The leaders of the second international did not have clear ideas because they based themselves on compromise they based themselves on on a softening of class and international relations that was the basis for their uh, their growth their position, and so their ability to understand contradiction to understand in fact the real processes taking place in society when they when they arose in 1914 was severely limited and the result of their lack of understanding was their betrayal and support for the first world war but we don't base ourselves on on the compromise on the softening of class and international relations
0: five minutes left
1: we base ourselves on the on the clash of classes on the class struggle because this is the motor force of history. If we deviate even slightly from this position, then as con- as the contradictions of capitalism and the class and international contradictions sharpen, we won't be able to understand what is going on and we will make serious political mistakes. The main thing we need to understand is that peace between classes or between nations is not possible as long as we have class society. In fact, the only peace that is possible under capitalism is the peace that we have now in Libya, which is not really peace at all. The, the former general secretary of NATO described NATO's bombing campaign in Libya as a success. It reminds me of what the Roman, uh, the Roman senator Tacitus wrote. They make a desert and call it peace. Under capitalism, the only options are the barbarism of war or the barbarism of peace. Our only way forward is to overthrow that system.
0: Two minutes left.
1: So I will finish with something that Marx wrote about the Paris Commune. He said that the war of the enslaved against the enslavers is the only justifiable war in history. And comrades, this is our war, the only justifiable one in history, and we must fight it with iron determination and with pride. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Ben, for that uh, very uh, rousing uh, sum up to this discussion. Thank you again to everyone who participated and contributed to the discussion. A warm revolutionary salute to everyone who has joined in and listened. I think to take uh, uh, Ben's uh, final words uh, seriously, it is uh, not enough to talk. We would encourage uh, all of you listening to take uh, the next natural step, which is to join us, to join the international Marxist tendency. I think it's clear to everyone that this system has nothing left to offer. We see constant wars, oppression, hunger, poverty, and need. A socialist revolution is the only way out. If you agree with that, we ask you to consider this seriously. No matter where in the world you are, go to marxist.com and sign up to join. We will have a 60-minute break followed by an uh, online rally on building the Revolutionary Party, the tool of the working class to overthrow this rotten system, the key task and the conclusion of the discussions during this school. We will reconvene at uh, 5.30
5: p.m. UK time. That is in 60 minutes. Thank you very much, comrades.